Hello and welcome to Food Systems, a podcast from the Forum for the Future of Agriculture, where we discuss new ideas that can shape a sustainable food system from farm to fork, from policy to consumers, and everything in between. I'm your host, Robert Agraf, and you can find us on Twitter at Forum for Ag. These episodes will be available every other week on all major podcast platforms. Before we get started, we'd like to say a quick thank you to the FFA founding partners, the European Landowners Organization and Syngenta, as well as the FFA strategic partners, Cargill, The Nature Conservancy, Rabobank, Thought for Food and the World Wildlife Fund. Please enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the fourth episode of Food Systems. Today, we're joined by Terry Tamminen, former chief policy advisor to Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, former CEO of the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation, current president of the Seventh Generation Advisors, a man who has won numerous awards for his work uh, on the environment and climate. And as well, he is an author, uh, a captain, and a helicopter and airplane pilot. So a distinguished thinker, and we're glad to, to join him today coming from California. Now, first, I would like to start with your thoughts. We're recording just in the aftermath of the announcement of uh, Democratic candidate Joe Biden. He has announced that California's Senator Kamala Harris will join him as vice president on the ticket. Um, Terry, what do you think of the ticket and what do you think of their climate and environmental ambitions? Well, I don't think you can overstate the value of having anybody uh, become the president and vice president of the United States who actually believes in climate change and environmental protection compared to the current administration. So it's not a very high bar to overcome. But I will say that uh, Kamala Harris is a senator representing my state, California. She's an absolutely outstanding individual, brilliant thinker and uh, advocate for the things that she's passionate about. So I think she'll help uh, Biden uh, with this administration's environmental policies and particularly on climate change. I, I think it's noteworthy that uh, both he and she mentioned that in their in their remarks yesterday, that uh, in, a, in the midst of a global pandemic and with all of the racial tensions we've had here in the U.S. recently and so many, of course, the economic challenges that have come as a result of COVID, that they were willing to focus on that as well, recognizing what an existential crisis uh, uh, climate change presents and how the next administration must uh, must tackle it. And if I may, a, a quick follow-up, I find it quite interesting. Their, their program is certainly very ambitious, 100% clean energy, net zero emissions by 2050, uh, a big infrastructure rebuilding plan, which will help in that. And also they are willing to put 1.7 trillion US dollars over 10 years into, into that goal. Um, well, without wishing to speculate too much about the outcome of, for example, the, the Senate, but how likely is it that such an ambitious package will actually make it through both the House and the Senate um, in whatever form they take shape uh, after November? You know, when you're the president of the United States, even if you have an opposition Congress, uh, they know that they have to work with you, that uh, you can veto their legislation on a variety of things, uh, and that obviously if they put uh, legislation on your desk, uh, it has to include your priorities. So I would hope for a change in Congress in the Senate so that uh, we can move th forward with these measures more quickly and more efficiently. But even if uh, Republicans retain control in the Senate, I do think that uh, Biden will get a lot done on these issues. And when you talk about trillions of dollars, 
I think the important thing is to realize that some of that is uh, stimulus or investment in infrastructure that Democrats or Republicans would be doing anyway. So let's say, for example, it's rebuilding bridges and highways. Uh, there's a clean way to do that and a not so clean way to do it. And so it's simply a matter of making sure that those dollars and jobs are allocated to sustainable solutions rather than just business as usual. Now, California has um, played long, long played a leading role in the U.S. climate uh, debate. You were one of the first states to sign a very significant uh, climate law in 2006 when uh, you were advising Governor Schwarzenegger at the time. Um, that role goal was reached early. Uh, in 2018, you had already uh, met the, the goals you set for yourself. What are the lessons you think that are most important to, to learn from, let's say, the California experiment? You know, I think, first of all, it's that policy, technology and finance equal results. So you begin with policy and setting those goals, as you mentioned, it was exciting to achieve those ambitious goals even a couple of years early. And when you look at some of the ways that was done, for example, part of those goals were achieved through our Million Solar Roofs Initiative, which last year, uh, former Governor Brown, uh, Governor Schwarzenegger and I were uh, pleased to do an event in uh, Central California commemorating the millionth solar roof that was achieved under that program. So it took 10 years, but it happened. And uh, those million solar rooftops generated three times more clean energy than we originally forecast uh, that they would. So it shows people really leaned in in a big way in business and in homes to put solar on their rooftops. Well, all of that represents jobs. It represents uh, tax revenue to the state. Uh, it represents uh, uh, infrastructure that we otherwise wouldn't have that's now more resilient and so many other benefits, not just greenhouse gas reductions, although that was certainly one of the goals as part of our plan. So setting goals is really important that, uh, uh, and setting incentives, of course, but it sends a message to industry that, uh, hey, if you ramp up, if you do your part, government is going to be there to help. And then it also signals investors, hey, this is an opportunity to get into this, uh, these types of, uh, of initiatives. That's a good point. I'd like to follow up on that. We agree that there's a big role for the incentivizing of business and industry. However, last year, the IMF did a calculation and said that globally, the oil and gas industries, for example, still receive 5.2 trillion US dollar in subsidies. Is there not a danger that we sort of seem to incentivize green attitudes on the same side, while at this, on the other, we still pour vast amounts of money into industries that we know cause large amounts of emissions? Oh, it's a huge problem. I wrote a book called Lives Per Gallon, The True Cost of Our Oil Addiction. And in there, I calculate that in the United States, we pay about $7 a gallon for gasoline more than whatever we're paying at the pump. So normally it's uh, three or four dollars a gallon, and uh, if you add seven dollars to that, it's ten dollars a gallon. It's just that it's not all paid at the pump. Uh, that's uh, in the cost of health care uh, because of air pollution. It's in the cost of lost crops. Uh, we've seen as much as thirty percent reduction in certain crops. Think about it just in the same way that air pollution harms your lungs. If you are a leafy vegetable trying to grow in polluted air, it's the exact same stunting of growth and, and corrosion of your, of your plant lungs, so to speak. Um, and so the, the cost is enormous uh, in terms of subsidizing the tax breaks and in terms of the externalities that business as usual is costing us. 
And so, yes, we absolutely have got to stop those subsidies. And that's also the justification for subsidizing green energy because it's simply leveling the playing field. If you took away all the subsidies tomorrow, uh, we now know that, of course, renewable energy, uh, energy efficiency, uh, waste reduction and so forth would all outcompete business as usual. That's inspiration for the future. As you're talking about this, the role of renewable energy, what is the role for California or, or indeed European farmers, for people who own or manage land? What is their role? How do you see their contribution to this? You know, it's a couple of things. Um, first of all, as I mentioned, if you look at the studies and if farmers were to look at the studies that I mentioned in my book and that have come out even since then, um, that uh, air pollution uh, and obviously changing climates are affecting their output. It's costing them more money and they're getting less yield. So they should be on the front lines of demanding change. And of course, in Europe, Europe has done much more on, in terms of climate policy than the United States, especially the last four years under Trump. So, uh, so not to criticize anybody in Europe, but farmers all over the world should be the ones that are demanding change if they want to continue to be uh, successful in their business. Uh, the second thing is that we know that regenerative agriculture can sequester uh, carbon in the soil, can in increase farm yields and have so many other benefits. And, uh, and it's a matter, I think, now of farmers saying, okay, look, let's get back to basics, what our parents and grandparents did when they didn't have and certainly didn't use billions of dollars a year in pesticides and petrochemical fertilizers and whatnot. We harnessed the value of the soil and biology to, uh, to produce healthy crops and, uh, and, and save money. Certainly uh, true. But there's also an argument. I read some of your remarks from the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation where you encourage, I think it's a letter to your son upon his graduation, you encourage him and others to, to eat local and organic food. There's also an argument to make that it shouldn't necessarily be local or organic. It should be produced where it's most efficient. So if the beef can most efficient, efficiently and sustainably be made in Argentina, let them do the beef and let California do the almonds, for example. Well, I think there's truth to that, but but uh, uh, it's not just the efficiency of production in a given country. You have to then add the transportation uh, and processing and refrigeration or if necessary and those types of things. So uh, much with anything else, it's just kind of like when people say, well, are you better with an electric car or I have a hybrid car? And the answer is, well, let's look at the life cycle analysis. I mean, uh, obviously, even electric cars don't fall off of a tree. So if you look at the inputs of energy and greenhouse gases and so forth that go into making a new car, you might be better off and the planet might be better off if you got a little bit more life out of the car you already have. So I think life cycle analysis is the key here. And, uh, and yes, there's no question that it's great to have a, a global ecosystem for food production, uh, but we also know that there's a lot of people starving around the world who could use uh, some of that food and uh, that part of this is about uh, equality in terms of distribution. I think that there's an interesting element. I wanted to turn a little bit more upstream to the food cycle. Doing our research, we saw that you were also an advisor to Walmart, America's largest supermarket and maybe even the, the largest in the world, uh, on sustainability. What kind of advice do you, do you give a supermarket on, on increasing their sustainability? You know, I think it's first and foremost to listen to your consumers. Um, consumers, at least here in the United States, and I think in Europe, increasingly do want to know where their food comes from. So to your point earlier about 
maybe it's more efficient to produce some crops uh, in a different country and ship them into your country. Okay, fair enough. But people want to know where that came from and how it was produced so that they can make informed choices. And we know that there's great debate over genetically modified crops, for example, that uh, that might increase yield and help feed starving nations. But on the other hand, there's, uh, there's concerns about uh, big corporations controlling our food supply because they own the intellectual property around that uh, genetically modified uh, item, or it may start to destroy natural ecosystems. Uh, and, you know, again, the discussion about organic versus uh, uh, crops that are made in using fertilizers, chemical fertilizers, and so forth, you can have those debates. But the bottom line is, I think consumers want to know what is in their food and where it came from. So honesty in labeling, transparency in labeling and supply chains, to me, is really the best way to help consumers decide, do they want something with a higher or a lower, lower carbon footprint? So what should we do as individuals? I mean, we've talked a little bit about the state. We've talked about the, the private sector. What should be the individual contribution to helping the, the climate effort? What, what is the most important? Well, let me tell you one thing that I do uh, with a little bit tongue in cheek, and then I'll tell you some serious things. But, uh, you know, the average American in the last 10 years has gained 10 pounds, five kilos, and, uh, and myself included. And uh, so if we all went on a diet, uh, we could actually help the planet a great deal because uh, carrying around all of that extra weight a scientist calculated that the U.S. burns 350 million gallons more of jet fuel every year because of passengers traveling with all that extra weight. Uh, now, of course, in the COVID times, nobody's in an airplane, but, uh, but the point being, uh, whether it's a car or an airplane uh, or any other means of transportation, if we all lost weight, we would feel better and so would the planet. Uh, so, uh, so that's one thing. But perhaps on a more serious note, I think it is consumers uh, and voters telling their leaders and the corporations that they do business with what it is they want. And we know in survey after survey, and certainly with young people, look at Greta Thunberg and the, and the movement she has ignited among young people. If companies want to stay in business in the next decade uh, or two to the next generation, they had better be listening to young people like this who want um, more climate-friendly foods and solutions and transportation and energy sources, which gets back to the point about making sure it's transparent and that it's clearly labeled and, and that those options are given to people. Uh, and politicians had better be listening to uh, people today as well as the younger generation coming up. I mean, Greta, I think when she started her campaign was 16. In the United States, the voting age is 18. I don't know what it is in Sweden. But this is a generation that uh, is currently making their first votes and and or very soon will be. So, uh, so I think politicians had better be paying attention to the fact that this is top of mind for the next generation because we're not leaving them a planet better than we found it. And that's what they want. In, and in, the, in that vein, in terms of leaving them a, a better planet, one of the keystone pieces, if not the keystone piece of, of the global fight against climate change is the Paris Climate Agreement. Now, the UN itself said last year that global emissions are still increasing. The temperature is still rising. And we have already increased global temperatures to 1.2%. Now, the IPCC, of course, famously said that 1.5 is the, is the maximum. What is your opinion? Where are the climate accords and, and are they sufficient? 
And just to clarify, I think you meant 1.2 degrees so far and 1.5 degrees centigrade uh, is as, as far as it should go. You know, look, a lot of people criticize the Paris Accords, but I actually think they were transformational because uh, previously, you know, we got the agreement in Paris at COP21 or Conference of the Parties 21, which meant it took 21 years to get over 190 countries literally on the same page in terms of what they would do. And so that's transformational. The fact that if everything under the Paris Agreement is achieved, only half of what we need to accomplish for that 1.5 degree future would be done, that is uh, alarming. But, you know, it's like anything else. If you want to buy a house, you might not have enough cash to buy the whole thing, but you put down a down payment and then you find a way to pay off the rest. So I think the Paris Agreement, uh, even if it doesn't achieve everything, is uh, an enormous down payment and it's getting everybody on the same page, literally and figuratively, for the first time in history so that now we have something to build upon. And to then, uh, since five years ago when the Paris Agreement was signed, to then have, whether it's advocates or academics or others in government, say, okay, how are we going to fill in that gap? Now we know what's the best level of ambition that uh, over 190 countries have said they can do. And uh, I, again, another criticism was that these were voluntary agreements. But again, I think that's the strength because here's what countries voluntarily said they could do without being pushed, without being uh, mandated from top down. Okay, great. So if this is what they say they can do without a whole lot of extra effort, then, uh, then that shows you how much more you have to do and where we're going to have to get those extra uh, reductions. And I would say one last thing, which is that, yes, uh, 2020 was the year scientists told us that we had better peak our emissions and then start bringing them down 5 to 7% a year thereafter if we were to hope to stay within 1.5 or 2 degrees uh, warming. Um, and beyond that, the, the impacts are catastrophic. And we were not going to make that uh, 2020 peak. Uh, but because of COVID and about a 17% worldwide reduction of greenhouse gases, uh, and I don't see everybody jumping back on airplanes anytime soon or getting back in their cars quite as quickly, that we have bought ourselves a couple more years. And that gives us more time to fill in the blanks uh, of the Paris Agreement. Uh, well, that is an awfully high price to pay, one would say, a, a global pandemic to reduce uh, emissions. In the end, does it not come down to, to leadership? What is missing in terms of our leadership? Who, who, are, who should our champions be? Or should it not be about champions? Should it be about everybody at the same time? You know, it has to be both. When you're in a crisis, you can't just wait for someone to tell you what to do if you can see what you have to do. And so, yes, we absolutely need leadership uh, now more than ever because these are big global problems that everyone's going to have to be involved in. And that gets back to my point about when you ask what can individuals do, voting is the number one thing for candidates who uh, understand the sense of urgency. But if you don't even have those candidates to vote for, then what are you supposed to do? So leadership truly matters. People who are willing to go back to the Paris Agreement, which uh, this upcoming COP uh, in 2020 here, which now I think has been postponed perhaps to early 2021, but the next conference of the parties is meant to say, okay, we've had five years since the Paris Agreement. Where are we? How are we going to implement uh, the rest? How are we going to increase that level of ambition? So that's, of course, why the U.S. election becomes so consequential. If we have Donald Trump, who has pulled us out of the Paris Agreement, 
and that would take effect actually next year, uh, his withdrawal, that, uh, that the world is doomed. You can't have the United States who has 5% of the world's population but uses 25% of the world's resources absent from this agreement. And, uh, and obviously with all of our technological adv advantages and capabilities, uh, we can't be absent from the solutions either. So uh, that's why it's essential actually for a new administration to come in and provide that leadership. Thank you. I wanted to end our, our conversation on a practical note. If you could give one piece of, of advice to our listeners and, and to those interested in, in sustainability and climate action, what would it be? I'd first of all say that uh, they're already doing it. If they're listening to this podcast, it means they're educating themselves, they're paying attention to uh, people who can elevate their, their knowledge and their ability to take action. So congratulations, thank you. But I would say we can never have enough information and that we need to spread it, that it isn't enough for those of us who are uh, listening to these kinds of podcasts and understand that this is an existential crisis and that we have to solve this problem uh, to do our own action. We all can be advocates and uh, convince our family, our friends, our uh, neighbors, our colleagues at work, um, wherever we go and, and, uh, and socialize, et cetera, to make this a topic of conversation. I mean, if this was World War II, I doubt there was a dinner conversation during World War II. I doubt there was a moment when people were talking to their elected leaders or, or vice versa, that the, that the topic of the war and the status of the war and how we were going to win it did not come up. So we are in a war for the future of this planet and for the future of our existence on this planet. And uh, it should come up in every conversation. We should make sure everyone is educated and no one is left behind because then, of course, we'll all take action. That's a perfect note to leave it on. Terry Tamanen, CEO of 7th Generation Advisors. Uh, thank you very much for this conversation. It's my pleasure. You've been listening to an episode of Food Systems, a podcast brought to you by the Forum for the Future of Agriculture. Look for us in two weeks when we release our new episode. And in the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app as well as on Twitter, at Forum Fag, for updates on this podcast, news, as well as FFA events. Please check out our website, www.forumforagriculture.com for more great content. Thank you for listening and enjoy your day. Mm -hmm.